about um, 25 years or so ago, uh, Margaret Thatcher rather famously said, uh, it, it was the time of the Falklands War, and she said, when you've spent your entire political life dealing with humdrum issues like the environment, <laughs> isn't it exciting to have a real crisis on your hands? Uh, well, of course, she wouldn't dream of saying that now, because we've all come to a realisation that we do have a real crisis on our hands, and it's called the environment. We, uh, we know that climate change is happening, that it's real, that it's caused by, largely by human activity, and that almost whatever happens at Copenhagen and beyond, and we're, we're not going to see a signed and sealed deal at uh, Copenhagen, but I very much hope that uh, Copenhagen will be uh, the genuine beginning of uh, a uh, solution rather than the end point. But whatever happens at Copenhagen and beyond, we know that we are almost certainly heading for a two-degree rise in average global temperatures <clears throat> by the end of this century. It may well be a lot more than that. A two-degree rise in temperatures brings with it very substantial changes. It brings sea level rise. It uh, brings more extreme weather. It brings more floods and droughts. It brings substantial changes in patterns of agriculture across the world. It brings uh, uh, substantial increases in temperature, for example, in southern Mediterranean countries. And it also uh, uh, brings uh, probably population movement in search of water resources. That's with two degrees, and we almost certainly know that whatever we do now, we are going to get a two-degree rise. If instead of two degrees, we end up with a four-degree rise, which scientists are now telling us is on the cards, uh, and which would certainly happen if we don't start to curb global emissions in a serious way, um, then uh, a four-degree rise in temperature means that those changes are magnified almost beyond our imagining. So in thinking about uh, how we plan for the built environment uh, going forward, so it seems to me that we need to consider very seriously what climate change is presenting us with. Now, there are two terms in the climate change debate, which I hate, uh, but which are central to the discussion of our response to climate change. And they are mitigation and adaptation. They are totally meaningless to ordinary people. Uh, mitigation means trying as hard as we can to stop climate change happening in the first place, to do everything we can to reduce our emissions and prevent the greenhouse gas effect that uh, is causing the change in climate and temperature. Uh, adaptation means coping with the consequences of climate change as they occur. And the Environment Agency is very much at the heart of that task of helping people to cope with environmental and climate change. We're also uh, pretty much at the heart of the mitigation effort 
as we, for example, administer the uh, European Emissions Trading Scheme, and we're about to administer the Carbon Reduction Commitment Scheme, uh, which will also be in place here in the UK. But the basic rule is if we fail to mitigate, then we're going to have to adapt much more uh, ferociously and strenuously than uh, we otherwise would have to. Now, in thinking of the built environment, of housing, of buildings, and of how we uh, both plan for them and build them and use them and adapt them, we have, of course, to do both the mitigation and the adaptation. Mitigation first. A quarter of the UK's energy emissions comes from buildings. And um, those emissions are not reducing terribly quickly. In 2007, there was a 4% reduction in emissions. They are trending gently downwards. That's welcome. But we need to see them fall much more steeply uh, than they have. Within those overall energy emissions, the heating of water accounts for a quarter of the average home's emissions. And uh, so thinking about not just reducing energy use, but reducing water use hits two targets because water resources are going to get scarcer as well over the course of the next 40 or 50 years. And uh, being able to place less demand on water resources and reduce the energy that uh, goes into the heating of water is a double benefit. So what do we need to do in order to uh, uh, try and uh, uh, reduce some of the energy that uh, uh, comes out of our buildings? Well, first and most important we need a proper, coordinated, national energy efficiency program, especially for people's homes. Now, the government have made a few valiant efforts in this respect. There are various bits and pieces of schemes. There are various incentives in place. But there is no sense, nowhere near enough of a sense, of a real, coordinated national program. Just think back to uh, the changeover from uh, artificial gas to natural gas what, 35, 40 years ago. There was a, a, a huge national program. It was advertised. Everyone knew it was happening. People would turn up in a van in a street and would go house by house and do it on a very sustained and coordinated basis. And it worked. And over the course of uh, 6 to 12 months, the changes were made. Now, we have nothing like that approach in relation to uh, uh, energy efficiency work, and we should have. And uh, there are some local authorities that have done some really good work on this and have organized things locally. Kirk Lees, for example, has a fabulous program, going street by street, estate by estate, uh, sending in first an advisor who will work with the household in planning what changes are needed to insulation, to the boiler, to uh, energy use, will then advise them on uh, where the grants are uh, and what help is available financially and what the payback times are on their reduced energy bills and will then sort out the work for them. 
Now, that's the sort of approach that we need. We need to make it easy for people to do the right thing. There's far too much hassle at the moment. So what, what we have is an uncoordinated bits and pieces approach, which is still difficult for the individual householder to get access to. And we need it to be better coordinated and easier. Then um, uh, what else do we need? Well, I, I was, while I, I'm on that subject, it, it's relatively easy to make a relatively new house more energy efficient. On the whole, they have lofts, they have cavity walls. Um, there are some easy things you can do. I live in an 1848 terraced house in London, which doesn't have a loft, it doesn't have cavity walls, it's a listed building. It is infinitely more difficult to improve the thermal insulation of older properties, particularly heritage properties, than it is to do something with relatively new properties. And we need to get better at helping people who are in my sort of position uh, to do the right thing as well. Uh, so uh, the first and most important thing is to have a proper energy efficiency program. But there are other things we uh, can do. The role of planning is uh, really important in um, helping to focus the minds of developers on the types of building that they um, uh, put in place. Building standards, building regs need to take account rather better of the, uh, the thermal insulation that we want to see. We need to uh, look seriously at the thermal insulation value of glass and get rather better at uh, producing as standard glass that has better insulation uh, properties and can be fitted in any circumstances. We need to have as standard shower heads that are aerated, so use actually much less hot water, but still give the effect for the person who's having a shower of uh, uh, having a, uh, a good wash. We need to look at the types of boiler that are available for people. We need to do more in terms of, uh, of, of developing green roofs. We don't have enough of those, and uh, we recently in the Environment Agency produced a green roof toolkit, uh, which I recommend to anyone who is interested. Now, of course, the government in the Code for Sustainable Homes has said that its aim is carbon neutrality for new homes by 2016. Great aim. We need to do it. I don't yet see enough of the detail that will take us there. So uh, I, I think um, we, uh, uh, we need to make sure that we're heading properly in that direction. And then, of course, there's the role that showcase properties and developments uh, can play. One of the things that I'm really pleased to have seen is the commitment in the Thames Gateway to making the Gateway what the government call an eco-region, which will look at the overall sustainability of the new development that takes place and also the assistance for the existing uh, building stock in the uh, Gateway area. And uh, we ought to be making more of the exemplar 
developments and buildings that can show us how to do these sort of things. I'll come on to one in particular in a moment or two. There's one issue, however, I mean, all, all of that is sort of relatively common sense stuff. All of it would help enormously. It would make a substantial difference in the uh, carbon footprint of our, uh, of our buildings. What it's much more difficult for us to do is anything about what's known as the embedded carbon. Because when you're building a building, you are, the moment you, you start up a lorry or you uh, start up a cement mixer, you are generating greenhouse gases. And it's actually very difficult to see how, unless we go back to building everything out of wattle and daub, we can do very much about embedded carbon. What we can do is a lot about the, uh, the, the carbon emissions of buildings once they're up and running. And we need to think also about how we can reduce carbon impact in the actual act of construction. But I think we have to acknowledge that that's going to be rather more difficult. And all of that on the mitigation side. What about the adaptation side? The, uh, one of the things we know from climate change is that we're going to get more floods and more droughts. The um, weather patterns here in the UK and elsewhere around the world are going to get more extreme. Uh, we're uh, going to uh, get increasingly what I tentatively describe as a new kind of rain. We're sort of, we're relatively familiar with the traditional rain that comes sweeping across the country from the west in a curtain. It's relatively predictable. We know how it's going to, uh, to work. We know where it's going to fall and in what sort of quantities. And the Met Office are actually getting rather good at forecasting where it's going to hit. What we're increasingly seeing, however, is rain that falls in a very different way, that gathers in one place and then dumps itself in a deluge in a very specific location. So the, um, uh, the rain that fell on Morpeth uh, about 14 months ago, for example, uh, which saw something like a month's rain fall in two hours on Morpeth, which flooded about a 1,000 properties, uh, that was rain that affected a very specific area. And that has a much greater impact in terms of flooding, both flooding from rivers that overflow or sea that gets high and comes over defences, uh, but also from drains that fill up and overflow, what's called surface water flooding. And, of course, frequently you're going to get both because the, the drains discharge into rivers, and if the river is already full, the drains can't discharge, so the drains overflow as well. Our uh, estimates at the moment are that 2.6 million properties in um, England and Wales are at risk of flooding from the rivers and the sea and a further 2.9 million are at risk from surface water flooding. So that's a huge number of buildings that potentially are at risk from flooding and the danger of flooding is going to get worse over the course of the next 30 or 40 years. Now, what can we do? Well, first of all, planning is again crucially important. There are still uh, developers who want to build buildings in floodplains. 
can normally tell by the name if it has anything like marsh or pond or uh, water in, uh, uh, in, in the name, I wouldn't recommend buying it. But we're getting better at this. It, the Environment Agency is a statutory consultee in planning applications for anything that is being proposed for a floodplain. Where we believe that the property is going to be at risk from flooding, we advise against and in 2007, our advice was taken in 96% of cases. There was still 4% where our advice was ignored, and that meant that 16 quite substantial developments in that year went ahead with buildings in a floodplain. But um, what we can also do is, as well as avoiding, through the planning system, making problems for ourselves in the future, we can also try and make existing buildings more resilient. And there are very simple things, like having plastic covers for air bricks, like having boards that will prevent water coming in through the front door, like putting the electrics up at a higher level and not down at, at, at skirting board level. And, and sometimes uh, you can deliberately build these features in to a property. We recently uh, did some improvements to the harbour sea defences uh, in Ipswich, and what that's enabled is a, uh, an opening up of the Ipswich Harbour area for development. And some fabulous buildings, one for the university, some for private uh, companies, and some uh, uh, for housing have been uh, developed. But they have all been made deliberately resilient in the event of flooding. So if a flood happens, we hope that our defences will work, and it won't, but just in case the defences don't work, then a flood will happen, but it will be easily copable with because there will be no permanent uh, destruction. We need to get better at doing that where there is any danger or likelihood of flooding. And a plea to the insurance industry, at the moment, if you've had a flood, you go to an insurance company, they will, um, in most cases provide you with the money to put your house back into the condition that it was before the flood. Now, we know that if you've had a flood, you are likely to have another one at some stage. I have asked the insurance industry, and I hope they will eventually come round to this, please, can they have a premium uh, advantage for those people who deliberately make their property more resilient after a flood than it was before. So they pay a lower premium for their insurance cover subsequently because actually it makes sense to encourage people to do it because it's less money for the insurance company at the end of the, uh, of the day. The other issue, as well as flooding, that's going to affect us is water resources. Our uh, estimate at the moment is that by 2030, in summer months in the south and east of England, where water is at its scarcest, uh, river flows in the summer will be down by at least 50%, and in some cases down by 80% on what it is now. Now that has a serious impact on, uh, the, uh, on the availability of water and making sure that we build in a greater wish to see water as the precious resource that it is rather than an infinitely available uh, commodity. 
building that concept into how we build is uh, uh, very important. You also need to look at drainage connections. Over the uh, uh, course of the last uh, uh, 30 or 40 years, we've concreted over vast areas of land, especially in our urban areas. And, of course, when you concrete over a piece of land, when rain hits it, it runs straight off into the drainage systems. It doesn't get absorbed into the ground. And that is one of the reasons why the drainage systems are filling up at times of heavy rain. You take London, for example. The Victorians bequeathed us a wonderful drainage and sewerage system in London. It was way over the needed capacity for the time when they built it. But since then, we have added in hundreds of uh, uh, thousands of properties, millions of people, and we've concreted over vast areas of previously permeable ground. And uh, so what we're doing is we're still putting all of that into the system which was designed for a city half the size. If the rain that fell on Gloucestershire uh, in the summer of 2007, and you'll remember the pictures of Tewkesbury Abbey and the water lapping at the wall of the abbey, if the rain that fell on Gloucestershire uh, in 2007 had fallen on central London, it would have had a catastrophic effect on the drainage systems of London. And the economic consequences of that are very substantial indeed. So we, we, we need to make more ground more permeable and we need to stop people putting so much concrete on. And we need, when new developments happen, not to allow them just to, to, to link into the existing drainage systems, but to, uh, to, to provide new drainage as part of the, uh, of the development. Now, all of this can be done. And uh, there's one uh, very good example which uh, uh, I'll give you, which is our new head office building for the Environment Agency, uh, which is uh, under construction at the moment in uh, the centre of Bristol. And um, it's been uh, given an 85.06% rating by the BRIAM um, Energy Efficiency Standards, this means that it is the greenest office building being built anywhere in the UK. And the great thing about it, I mean, it's, it's going to be a terrific building. The, there's virtually no extra cost in constructing it to these very high uh, environmental standards, uh, but it will save us £180,000 a year in the running costs of the building. And what we've done is not rocket science. It's stuff we've all known about for a very long time, but we put them all together in one building. And that includes rainwater harvesting, using rainwater to uh, uh, flush all the uh, WCs. It means intelligent metering and detection controls to ensure efficient water use. It means uh, uh, photovoltaic cells to produce electricity. It means natural ventilation throughout the building, cooling the building at night and ensuring good working conditions with minimum energy consumption. Uh, we have natural ventilation of the underground car park, which will reduce energy consumption by 44 megawatt hours per year. And what's more, we will make sure that very few employees drive cars to get there. There are temperature controls 
The uh, heating is provided by a ground source heat pumps. There are also solar hot water collectors to produce hot water. There is a wildflower meadow grass roof on the upper terrace. The, uh, there will be extensive cyclist parking and shower facilities uh, so that people are encouraged to cycle to work. Aggregates from previous building demolition uh, have been used for the substructure of the building and where possible we've sourced the materials from the, for the building from local suppliers and on-site monitoring and reporting of water and electricity consumption will be used together with monitoring of carbon dioxide production for both deliveries and site activities. Now, none of that is terribly difficult stuff, and it could be something that's done by virtually any major building developer, and we hope that the example that we've uh, uh, been able to provide will help to lead that process. The public sector, I'm afraid, has not been terribly good up to now. The Sustainable Development Commission have recently reported that sustainability in government buildings in terms of design and operations is poor. Only 42% of new build and refurbishment projects in the public sector have achieved the required standard. And that standard is actually not particularly high. So... And, and I believe the public sector has to lead in all of this. It has to show by example what is possible to do and how we can adapt for climate change. The greening of buildings must uh, absolutely start at home for the government, and that means specification, procurement, and transformation of how we approach the development and the running of buildings. Above all, what it needs is a determination from all of us that we need to take climate change seriously in the built environment and uh, none of us should ever dream of regarding it as a humdrum issue. Thank you.